want us to sit in silence and look at the bed. And I want us to remember what it's meant to remind us of today. We've been told that it's the birthright of every Christian to hear the word of the Lord. If you are a Christian, if you are born again, you are capable of hearing, receiving and responding to the word of the Lord. And today, whether it's through my sermon or incidentally to it, I want you to invite the Lord to speak into your life and into the life of our church in a way that transforms. So let's just be still for a few moments. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. We thank you that your word is here to teach us, to correct us, to bless us and inspire us. And we thank you in support of your word. You give the capacity of your people to receive your word, to hear you speaking into our lives. Help us as a church not to be dozy, but to be alert. Help us to hear your voice speaking and directing, correcting and renewing us day by day. And in the many voices which make up our church. Please will you silence us. And help us to hear your still small voice. To the honour and glory of Jesus' name. Amen. And if we can have the first of my slides up. So if you've not been around for the last few weeks, uh, we started this as a third sermon on a series on Samuel, the first book of Samuel. So if you've got the page handy, you might like to turn it up, 277. But uh, 1, 2 Samuel and 1 or 2 Kings belong together, four books that speak of a very significant time in Israel's history. It was nearly 3,000 years ago. So you sit there and you think, how can God speak to me from across those years? The times were turbulent. God's people were all over the place. There were people in power who should never have power. And there were those who needed to exercise leadership and godliness who were kept down. The word of the Lord was not heard in the land, it says, for a very long time. And then on the scene comes a boy eventually. That boy is Samuel. But firstly, there was a woman called Hannah. We heard about her from Nigel, a woman who wanted and longed to have a child. She was barren. And even in her advancing years, God heard her desperate prayer. And she had a child, but not before she'd lived through many years of unhappiness, taunted by her husband's Elkanah, other wife, who taunted her that she could not bear children. And when this little boy came, and her prayer was, just like the prayer of Mary, through this son, I will give 
him back to you for your purposes, she prayed to God. And that boy was called Samuel. Samuel was many things to the people of God. He was a prophet. He was a judge. He was a war leader. But he was someone provided at a significant time amongst God's people. And he heard the voice of God for others. Something that is a vocation for some of you. And in that vocation, he brought restoration to the people of God. But not before, in chapters 4 to 6, which we're not looking at, Raiders of the Lost Ark happened. The Philistines, a constant problem to Israel, pinched this symbolic piece that represented the presence of God, the word of God, the power of God amongst his people. They nicked it and they wished after a while they hadn't. Their fortunes were terrible as a nation. And it actually, it's just worth saying that they weren't sure if it was just a stroke of bad luck or what. But when it came to giving it back, they couldn't wait. But they thought, okay, instead of tying this thing up to some oxen, which we'll be used to pulling it, we'll use a couple of old cows and see how they go on. So they tied this on a truck uh, to these two old cows, and the cows just legged it straight back to the people. So they thought, obviously, the Israelite God means business with this, and they were glad to give it back. And that's where we take up our story. Except I've got just one more slide. Way before the time of Samuel, Israel had spent a long time turning their back on God. And let me tell you, I'm going to be talking about repentance this morning. And repentance is a, an odd word, especially because you and I live in a world where sin has come to look very odd and quaint. Jesus came to deliver us from our sins. But sin is not something that people think about these days. A bit of shame, maybe. But we don't think of ourselves as sinners. And perhaps the best way I can think of at this point in time of portraying what sin is, is when humanity simply turns their back on God. We do it all the time the faithful and the unfaithful. But if you can't quote with the idea, cope with the idea of sin, think today of how we individually, as a church even, as a community and as a company of nations, turn our back on God. And as we do so, fail to hear his voice. So at the end of the previous chapter, the Ark of the Covenant is returned to Israel with amazing impact. For 20 years then, it sat there, it says in our, our passage for today. 20 years it sat there, and it goes on to say that the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. It's not clear whether they did nothing with it for 20 years or the presence of the Ark in their midst again made them think we've blown it. But you know, as the people of God, even as the born-again people of God, we can sometimes take a very long time 
to turn back to God. Good churches can be on a track doing good things. But we're still facing in the wrong direction. And the story of the people of God over those 20 years is an invitation to turn back and to face God and to face a new direction. It says they sought the Lord. So in chapter 7, this young lad Samuel comes back. And throughout the years he's been active. And verses 15 to 17 tells us what his regular activities are. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, it says. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah. For his home was there, that's where he was born. And there also he judged Israel. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So basically, Samuel's role, way before they'd got kings, was like a sort of, it was a tribal nation. And he travelled around the communities of these tribes, preaching and speaking the word of the Lord to people at key locations. And his message is summarised in verse 3. If, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, a particular God, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. And in the same way that modern sensibilities struggle with the idea of sin we struggle even as Christians with the idea of repentance I'm staggered the number of times people say to me do we have to have a confession well I have so much business to do with God in the prayer of confession I would not like us to miss it out and it clears the way for responding to the Lord repentance isn't negative it's a turning point that leads to grace and to freedom. And Samuel's message and approach is clear. There had to be personal repentance, turning back to God, before there could be any corporate repentance amongst all the people. I get transformed, and you too must get transformed. But I can't wait for you. My response to God must not be contingent on your response to God. Don't bother looking around at your brother and sister Christians, seeing how they're doing and how they're responding. The word through Samuel is, I've got to get myself right with God. Never mind them. And as each one does so, and there's a corporate turning, life comes back to the people of God. So for this to happen, says Samuel, there has to be a renunciation of living behaviours which turn aside from God. The sin of which Israel was guilty was not open rejection of the Lord. Rather what they did was mix following Yahweh with tinkering about with other gods. Now, Aldridge is quite sophisticated. So we don't have a Baal and an Ashtoreth. 
But we do have other gods. We do have those ways of living that say, I want the living God. But please can I have my other little gods as well. And if Samuel is to be believed as a judge, and that comes to us as the word of the Lord today, then the answer is no. They had been simply guilty of compromise. And at times, so have I. And so have you. If they wanted to know divine blessing, they would have to repent of their action. And repentance is so much more than feeling a bit bad over something I did. It is about turning and facing a new direction. It's about turning from having your back to God, saying, Lord, honestly, I'm listening, but I'm busy now, to turning and facing him. And as you do so, seeing him and his call on your life through a deep change of direction. And the change required of them was total dedication to the Lord. They listened eventually to the preaching of Samuel. And so it says at the end of verse 3, So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. What have I got to put away in order to hear the word of the Lord? Sisters and brothers, what have you got to put away? Good, faithful, evangelical, born-again Christian. What have you got to put away to hear the word of the Lord? As I said earlier, it's not clear how long this process took. Twenty years they'd had the ark back, the symbol of God's presence, and yet only then did they hear and receive the word of the Lord. And this is a reminder that in looking for restoration, in one sense our response must be swift. But the journey can require patience. The t-shirt that says God hasn't finished with me yet has got some good biblical truth in it. But there has to be a turning to begin the new journey. And when we think of our life together, God will not move in a situation unless I am changed. And that's why the situation for which he's waiting starts with the repentance of each and every believer. And I'm wondering, who was the last person to repent in Israel at this time? And what was the time gap between that person and the first one to repent? I hope it wasn't 20 years. As we apply this to ourselves, each of us knows the necessity of turning again and facing the living of God, of repenting of our compromises with sin before restoration can come. And the longer we resist repentance, the longer the blessing will stay away. I wonder how many unrepentant members of a church does it take to hold back the blessing of Almighty God? I think the answer is one. Am I that one? 
available to you. And after personal repentance comes public and corporate repentance. With personal repentance having taken place on a national scale, they had this great big prayer meeting at Mizpah. It was now possible to have corporate repentance. So Samuel arranged for the nation to gather at one of his regular meeting places, Mizpah. That's where he went regularly to proclaim the word of the Lord. But now they were ready to hear. And when they met, they did three things. They used a symbolic action. They denied themselves a legitimate function and they articulated a common confession. The symbolic action was drawing water and pouring it before the Lord, which signified their desire for cleansing. Don't knock symbolic actions. Even physical behaviours in worship can be a sign of something deeper. The point of such an action was to help them remember what it was they were doing. And this is the easiest and least important aspect of their corporate repentance because it could be done without much pain or trouble and it's only of value if the other two are included. So symbolic actions are useless on their own. But when there is a physical turning, if it represents a deep turning, God's on the case. The legitimate desire they did without was eating food. And I cannot just remind you that it was when we were building that centre that I think we last had a corporate day of fasting. I think that's too long ago. I think fasting can, when the people of God are genuinely on the turn, Release the grace and power of God into our midst. You can do that on your own. But there just may be a time for us as a church to hold a day of fasting, not for a building, but for the building of God's people, for the renewing of God's people, that God's people may turn, the faithful ones turn, with a new spring in their step, a new alertness to God and a fresh obedience for this next season of our life. And the common confession was straightforward and simple. The third thing, they simply said, we have sinned against the Lord. Now I want to say, as I said at the very beginning, sin has become in our corporate culture quite quaint and meaningless. But they knew that they'd turn their back upon God. And however we get our heads around it, the notion of turning back to him, which is repentance, is something we need to do. And whether it suits our culture or not, sin is for real. The particular name of God they use signifies his unique relationship with Israel, that he is their Lord It's one we sing and use and pray very regularly. It's the divine name that indicated his unchanging commitment to his people. So the point there is that God is utterly committed to us. And the question to Israel and to each of us is, are we equally committed in covenant relationship to him? God longed for the best for and from his people, for he is the Lord.
And that's why turning is so important. And then we come to features of repentance. There are three kinds of repentance. There's natural repentance, which occurs when a person realizes he's done something wrong, an inappropriate action. You kind of just know that something's wrong. There's a legal repentance in a, person, in a person who is convinced by the law of God, or the law of the land, if you like, that what they've done is wrong, but actually would rather they didn't know. Have you ever realized you've done something wrong and thought, yeah, but it was quite nice? You're probably too good, but I think that quite a lot. It was Augustine who said to the Lord, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. A legal repentance. He really didn't want to change. And then something called evangelical repentance, nothing to do with our tradition, is the response to God's offer of pardon and involves turning your back on what is wrong, even when it's attractive. A self-humbling, because you think, I want to live for this Lord, regardless of how attractive my balls and my ashtoreths really are. And a longing to be free of it. Freedom in Christ, which we run here periodically, is about cutting the ties in our life, in John Coyne's life, that hold him back time and again. It's also important to note that repentance is not the cause, but the condition of Yahweh's deliverance. Repentance is not a religious twisting of the divine arm. I repent, God, I turn back, and you deliver what I want. Instead, it's the state of a soul that God wants to see to release his full blessing. Now, many of you quote, because you're around the same time as me, when after come together, uh, there was a particular thing, and it says... From 2 Chronicles 7.14. It speaks of the people turning from their wicked ways. That God would heal their land and restore their people. I think Israel had to turn from their wicked ways. I think Western nations need to turn from their wicked ways. I think, frankly, whoever gets in in North America. They have to turn from their wicked ways. Because that kind of power is not compatible with the will of God. Now, repentance is a Christian activity, not only at the beginning of the Christian life, but throughout it. And of course, repentance is not the same as being perfect. Repentance is primarily an attitude of heart, one that is about turning toward God, seeking to maintain a steady course of obedience toward God. That's why when you look at the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, five of them at least had to repent. Because what they needed was a steady looking toward God and a new obedience. Jesus found fault with those five and he instructed each of them to repent of their sins. And it demonstrates to us who are the church that repentance is not a one-off act. It's not something you do when you became a Christian. Rather, it's an ongoing process that demands lifelong acts of repentance. Tertullian, the early church father, once said, I was born for nothing but repentance. And so what does that mean in reality? 
means like the bed on the floor here. Being alert to God. Sensitive to anything that would come between us and him. And dealing with it straight away. In our individual lives, that's for you to work out with God what that means. In our corporate life, we're sometimes dozy. And repentance and forgiveness comes very slowly. Jim Packer likens repentance to the drainage system on the highway of holiness whereby we get rid of the dirt and rubbish that clings to our lives. And unless we remove these sins, they will accumulate and eventually block the road that hinders our progress. So as I close, I've just got some very brief points from this chapter. The first evidence that you see here is that when the people turn back toward God, even then things can go wrong. The Philistines thought the prayer meeting was the first step in a battle where the Israelites were going to come out and get them. So they thought we'll strike fast. So when the people of God were at prayer, not ready for war at all, the Philistines think we'll have one last pot at them. When we have our day of fasting, when we turn as a church toward God, we enter a battlefield. And that's the first evidence that when you repent, you need to realize you're still in a battle. Secondly, the second evidence of true repentance was a lack of self-confidence in the Israelites. Often they just did their own thing and now they realized they couldn't sort this out on their own, that their future meant depending upon God. And that meant that the third evidence involved a realization for the necessity of prayer. And this struck me as a particular way of speaking to us as a church on the importance of our regular prayer events and of prayer and fasting. We are far too busy as a church to not do more praying. I am convinced now utterly convinced, and you resist this as a congregation, that we could cut our program significantly and the kingdom of God would not suffer one diddly squat. Because we have built up over years many things, not balls and ashtoreths, but things which the people of God do, but we haven't got the kind of prayer life that can release the blessing. Another evidence of true repentance is recollection of the Lord's goodness. And if you ever wondered what Ebenezer's chapel was all about, now you know where it comes from. It's called Ebenezer, it simply means a stone of help. And Ebenezer's chapel, where you see him all over Wales and everywhere else, is a reminder of the need to depend on God's help and grace. And as a result of doing all those things, which were evidence of their repentance... What happens was that the people got their land back and things began to flourish. So it says in verses 25 to 27, right at the end. I don't mean 25 to 27, do I? No, right, sorry, wrong book. Um, Joel chapter 2. 
This is another scripture that speaks about the same principle of repentance. When God's people repent of their sins, he will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the cankerworm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent amongst you. And you shall then have plenty and be satisfied and proclaim the name of the Lord your God. And the story after repentance and after a battle is that the people experience what some choose to call revival. It wasn't revival, but it was the restoration of what it means to be the people of God, obeying God, loving him, and following him day by day. Folks, in the words of Watchman Nee, this is the normal Christian life. I don't want to get in the way of that. Make sure you don't either. Let's pray. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, I will restore them and will heal their land. Living God, I pray that whether we regard sin and repentance as quaint, quaint old-fashioned words, we may discover their power as we hear the story of Samuel and that we may, instead of turning our back upon you, turn toward you. That we may know what it is to repent, even as full-blown believers, of those things which hold back your blessing on us and your church. And we pray in utter dependence upon you for a season of restoration, grace, and new power. In Christ's name, amen.